Welcome to episode 30 of Ancient Rome Refocused, season 6. Today on the show we have David Denyer, a composer out of London. David has composed music for the Bacchae by Euripides and wrote music which can only be described as a micro-opera on the ancient city of Troy. He lives in a part of London called Kilburn, which is a stop on the underground. Just take the Jubilee line. After the show, we have plenty of bonus material, for he has given us permission to post some of his music. If you're interested in David's work, you can catch his albums on SoundCloud.com. I have some news. Joining us on Ancient Rome Focused, as a regular contributor, we have composer and writer Matthew Lee Embleton, who will be delivering lectures on his favorite subjects about the ancient world. Matthew has been a welcomed listener and guest contributor for many years, and will drop in via Kent, England with his unique and eye-opening views of mythology, opium, and Latin. You probably heard his music on the show, and I'll leave a link to Matthew's website on the blog. When we think of Latin, some of us think of a school motto, an idea for a tattoo, words and phrases used in church, or memories of learning Latin at school, copying down and attempting to memorize grammar tables and deconstructing passages of Cicero. Where did this ancient language come from? How did it evolve? And how did it become so important? This is a brief history of the Latin language. Latin began as the language of an Italic tribe called the Latini living in a small territory called Latium at around 1000 BCE. The early form of the Latin alphabet they used was based on that of the Etruscans, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, and ultimately traceable back to Egyptian hieroglyphs. One of the oldest known texts of archaic Latin is the Carmen Saliare, the Songs of the Leaping Priests, fragments of rituals believed to have been introduced during the reign of the second king of Rome, Numa Pompilius, 715-673 BCE. In 449 BCE, the Law of the Twelve Tables was announced as the foundation of the law of the Roman Republic and was the basis of Roman law for over a thousand years. From around 260 to 75 BCE, several generations of authors from Lucius Livius Andronicus to Quintus Cornificius produced works of drama, comedy, history, poetry and satire in archaic Latin that would be built upon by the following generations. Up until a few decades ago, it seemed that to have a grasp of Latin was to be somewhat cultured or a sign of having had a good education. In Cicero's time, the same was true of ancient Greek. Rome had conquered Greece in 146 BCE, but Greece then conquered Rome, 
with its rich culture. Marcus Tullius Cicero, or Cicero, 106 to 43 BCE, was a Roman statesman, lawyer, scholar, and philosopher. By building on the work of translating and using ancient Greek theory and practice to perfect his style of Latin, Cicero is credited with having ushered in the age of classical Latin. On one hand, he used the wealth of ancient Greek literature as a model, and on the other, found a uniquely Roman voice and identity to discuss ideas and concepts that equaled the ancient Greek tradition. This highly formal style of language was not for everyday use, however. For that, there was Vulgar Latin. This was not a separate language, but rather the informal version of Latin. These days, the word vulgar often has immediately negative connotations and implies something crude or objectionable. The original meaning was more like simply common or everyday. The graffiti on the walls of the remains of Pompeii provides evidence of vulgar Latin and also some slang words which are indeed vulgar in the modern sense. Even the great champion of classical Latin, Cicero, is known to have written letters to his friends using the everyday Latin vulgarisms. In 27 BCE, when Rome changed from republic to empire, its territory expanded dramatically, along with the reach and influence of its culture and language, particularly the language of administration, law, science and engineering. During a period known as Pax Romana, under the leadership of good emperors Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius, from the year 96 to 180, the Roman Empire reached its maximum extent and literature and the arts flourished, with an ever-widening range of subjects and styles. Writers of the time continued to look back to Cicero and classical Latin and try and emulate it. Pliny the Elder, Celsus and Scribonius Largus, among others, collected and catalogued existing medical knowledge, and Greek writers such as Dioscorides and Galen also wrote in Latin, contributing to the fields of medicine and science. Apuleius, Juvenal, Martial and Petronius, among others, used philosophy and satire to explore every aspect of life, examining the important questions of the day, and occasionally daring to ask, where are we heading? The transition from Classical Latin to Late Latin coincided with a period of destabilization throughout the Roman Empire, referred to as the Crisis of the 3rd century. A series of internal conflicts and the decline of centralized power resulted in less standardization of Latin across the sprawling empire, and many literary works began to take on the non-standard features of Vulgar Latin and the vernacular. Around the year 300, a document was written in Rome and named after the grammarian Marcus Valerius Probus, becoming known as the Appendix Probi. The document contains a list of 227 common spelling mistakes with their corrections. This sheds light onto how the spelling and pronunciation of Latin had begun to change and evolve steadily towards the Romance languages. Speculum, not speculum. Masculus, not masculus. Articulus, not Articlus. With the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire came the emergence of Christian texts in Latin, including Saint Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew, completed in 405. 
Latinizing much of the theological language of Greek, it was intended to be elegantly simple and unornamented, so that it could be understood by all Latin speakers, and it was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, whose documents and liturgy became known collectively as Ecclesiastical Latin. When the Western Roman Empire finally ceased to exist in the year 476, the Eastern Roman Empire continued to flourish, centred around its capital at Constantinople. The importance of maintaining the use of Latin in the East was argued by emperors from Diocletian to Justinian the Great, but it was gradually replaced by Greek. Latin remained a minority language in the East until it evolved into the local Eastern Romance languages of Dalmatian and Romanian. To find out more about my work, visit www.matthewleeembleton.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Plato said, Music gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. The title of this podcast is Unsettling Music on the Jubilee. I'm taking you to meet a composer. Right now, we are riding on what is known as the Overground, and maybe that name is a bit of a misnomer. It's originally, originally it was called the Underground Rapid Transit System of London, and it, its trains speed through subterranean tubes and rise up on tracks in the open air. Right now, we're in the open. Only 45% of the system is underground. Overground tracks circle central London and the underground tracks take you into the center of the city. Frankly, I'm a big fan of composers that can take you back in time. You see, I'm a big fan of Miklos Rasha. He's a Hungarian-American composer that composed music for uh, such movies as King of Kings and El Cid. We're talking about the 40s and 50s here. His music was accepted on the classical stage and in the music studio. Yeah, his music can be heard in such hits as The Lost Weekend and Spellbound, and is part of the MGM epics such as Quo Vadis, Julius Caesar, Knights of the Round Table. You see, I am a poor man's time traveler. Music is the only way I'm going to be able to travel back to the ancient world. Flip the switch in my limbic system, and I am there. And saying that, there's someone I want you to meet. 
station is Kilburn. This train terminates at Stratford. Here's our stop. Watch your step. This is Kilburn. Kilburn is an urban landscape. Well, there's pubs, lots of pubs, including the old Bell, with a decent beer garden, or the Queen's Arms with its live entertainment. On the high road, an occasional double-decker bus runs by. Kilburn is a multicultural area, a bit rough in spots, but a place where artists can set up digs and live comfortably while making their art. Main Street, called the High Road by the locals, is part of Watling Street, an Anglo-Saxon name. This was the main route used in classical antiquity, late antiquity, and even throughout the Middle Ages. Roman soldiers may have marched along it, going to or from the defeat of Bodokai. Of course, at the time, you could see to the horizon, but now your vision is inconveniently blocked by shops, terraced homes, and flats mixed with the bustle of the city. A pavement stone commemorates the Roman road, a remembrance to a time when roads themselves were high-tech innovations. You will have to use your imagination in visualizing what this part of the city must have looked like in those times. David lives near the Kilburn station. It's a short walk in the rain. Strange enough, we pass a music store. Rob, what are you doing here? He invites us in. How do I describe David Denyer? He is gracious with his time, if anything. Who would invite two strangers into his home to gawk at his workspace? If you ever see a picture of David, he looks ethereal. He looks long-faced, as if beautifully tortured upon the rack. At first glance, he could be mistaken for a sultan or a pope in a painting by Bellini. I've been really thinking about this. 
I think it has to do with the beard. He really rocks the beard. When David Denyer plays an instrument, he looks like he no longer inhabits his own body. His face looks like he's concentrating on every note that is coming from the violin. The emotion, the passion are in the notes. Body and instrument are one. And that begs the question, is David the violin or is the violin David? David composed the music for a micro-opera about the ancient city of Troy. I found some reviews. Quote, A violin in tone is caressed like a child. A growling cello when laid down becomes a corpse. And a taunting accordion transforms into a set of gasping lungs. How's that for setting the scene? One of the things that really excites me about about music is the opportunity to sort of show people power music can have outside of some of the established norms that we have. I mean, everybody is relatively familiar with the concept that music can, you know, elicit emotional responses. So, you know, it can make you happy, it can make you sad, all of these relatively sort of straightforward um, experiences. But, you know, it can also make you afraid. Performed by Charlotte Holton, playing Agave, the most tragic figure of the Bacchae, for she shall hold the decapitated head of her own son, whom she killed while possessed by Dionysus. Yeah. <laughs> 
first met David Denyer in a cafe at Euston Station. Um, I'd heard about him from the director of the of the show, and she said that she'd met this guy who has some crazy ideas and wanted to um, make it feel very dark and bonkers, and he wanted to talk to me about my vocal range. So we met, and I think it was in Acosta in Euston, um, to chat about how high I was willing to sing. A good story needs a moment of 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 suspense. You know, a good drama needs a moment of uh, of uncertainty. And in the same way with music, I feel like, you know, beautiful music is only really meaningful if it's contrasted by um, by the opposite. And I kind of think that, uh, especially these days, when when music as a, as a as an experience has been has been very very heavily commodified i feel like the, the the focus is very much on things that sound good that can give you a very immediate sort of uh, dopamine hit in your brain this makes me feel good for this reason um i feel like nobody well not very many people seem to be exploring the opposite you know what what happens if you really contrast that and give people an experience that is no less effective but might kind of explore some more complex uh sides of the coin but he is, he is certainly unusual I don't know how many people could come up with what he comes up with I remember him telling me that some of the sounds were made from him crushing a chicken carcass god David <laughs> I didn't need to know really really into his craft yeah yeah um because I was also performing on stage with that production um I was conduct I was conducting the band and playing triangle uh, which, which is easy to do because the triangle stick can also serve as a conducting stick. Um, but uh, I was on stage. I was I was one of the bakai, one of the musician bakai. Basically, uh, we had our own like special costume, which, which was similar to the other bakai but slightly different. Um, and uh, it was quite interesting because we we wanted to create this notion that the music, the music that you hear in the play, is the music that is played by the bakai in the drama. You know. Um, so it, it, the music is always on some level with one foot in the diegetic and one foot outside of it. Um, and, uh, that was always quite interesting because, uh, it meant that, um, it meant that we had the freedom to be on stage, to kind of walk around stage and to sort of, uh, in, in some way interact with the cast. Um, yeah, that, that was quite fun. How high? Yes. He said, how high do you normally sing? And I said, well, I'm a soprano, but not actually very high of a soprano and he said can you sing a top b which is the note that you hear at the end that turns into a horrible cackling thing and i said i don't know if i can and he said well we're gonna have to try And then that turned into singing it pretty regularly for the next, oh gosh, however many months, eight months that it was. My voice has never been the same. For me, composing is entirely divorced from performing. Um, maybe not entirely, but for the most part, I'd say composing is different to, different to performing. So I tend not to compose on an instrument. I tend to just compose... Um, you know, straight onto paper or, or straight into the computer. Um, with uh, yeah, I kind of think that um, 
there is this notion that that uh, and and this is kind of why I think this is partly why a lot of piano players end up composers because you can compose on the piano very easily, um, and and there's a lot of composers out there who do compose straight onto the piano. Um, a lot of the time, it's sort of recording improvisations or um, you know whatever. You just like the the piano allows them to just sort of create instantly. Being a violinist, uh, primarily. Uh, it means that whilst to some degree I can play stuff on the violin, but it, it feels like um, whatever instrument you play, whatever instrument you're holding, whatever instrument you're you're using, does have quite a big influence on on the work that comes out. So um, if you compose on a piano, it doesn't matter if you're writing a string quartet, you're writing a sort of piano-ish string quartet because the shapes that come under your fingers are going to be the ones that lend themselves best to piano playing. Um, and uh, I guess for that reason, I feel like I try to keep composing and performing as separate as possible in in uh, in my mind, so that when I'm composing, I'm not limited by what instrument I happen to be holding, but instead, it's a much more abstract notion of what would sound good, and you know, what would this feeling that I've got about this piece be best is expressed by, or what would this particular motif I'm hearing be best, you know, performed on. Um, and then later, you know, if I'm recording, I'll, I'll perform it on on that instrument. But um, yeah, I don't know. I try to avoid. I try to avoid composing, you know, on specific instruments or for specific instruments. I think because um, for me, I find it quite limiting. But I know that most composers are are um, they just like to do everything on the piano, which which is fine for them, I suppose. The Bacchae was written by the Athenian playwright Euripides. It won first place in a competition called the Dionysia. Imagine an ancient progenitor of the Academy Awards. It is tragedy, based on a myth of King Pentheus who slandered a god. In those days you never slander a god. To doubt that Dionysus was the son of Zeus is to have the god of wine show up on your doorstep with his minions. These are drunken women, sodded on wine, who do the gods bidding. They are uncontrolled. They do what they want. They have been seen wandering the hills at night, partaking in unrestrained orgies and killing cattle. Oh, where are the husbands and fathers? What will ever become of society? A bit of advice at the beginning of the play provides a bit of foreshadowing. An old seer warns the king not to offend the gods or he will suffer the same fate as Actaeon when carnivorous hounds tore him apart when he boasted that he was better at hunting than the goddess Artemis. So what is the main point of the Bacchae? Do not cross the gods. I know. I know, an oversimplification. However, I would like to make an observation. There was a certain brilliance for the author Euripides to make the uncontrolled chorus, the women, the characters to be feared, the era of 407 BC. The women, especially in ancient Greek society, were the most controlled of all. The oppressed became the monsters. I use that word carefully when I'm about to speak about Stephen King. Could I say that Euripides was the Stephen King of his age? 
the genre of horror takes the recognizable, the everyday, and makes it unimaginable. Whether a dog named Pujo, a clown named Pennywise, or the women of 47 BC. There might be there might be a, a million people on the planet that can that can play a given composition by a composer, but there's only one person on the planet that could have composed it because of the the pe- peculiarities of composition of how your personality goes in goes into a piece. So I'm I'm not a piano player really. Um, the the I'd say probably about ninety five percent of composers in the world are piano players. They very often they started out on the piano. Um, or they didn't, and then they learned piano as a, as a tool for composing. I think mainly because it has such a broad range, and and it, and it can, it, you know, any orchestral part can be played on a piano. You know, so if you want to write a piece for full orchestra, the piano is the instrument that will allow you to kind of work out all of those parts. And I think that, uh, yeah, it just there just seems to be a very strong flow of composers coming from the piano playing world. Um, I wasn't one of those. I mean, I did do a little bit of piano when I was very small um I got up to grade two I think and then uh I just, just stopped and um I mean I can I can knock some things out if I if I you know if I focus hard enough but really I'm not a piano player which means that for me composing is entirely divorced from performing maybe not entirely but for the most part, I'd say composing is different to different to performing. So, I tend not to compose on an instrument. I tend to just compose, you know, straight onto paper or, or straight into the computer. Yeah, I kind of think that um, th- there is this notion that that, uh, and and this is kind of why I think this is partly why a lot of piano players end up composers because you can compose on the piano very easily, um, and and there's a lot of composers out there who do compose straight onto the piano. Um, a lot of the time it's sort of recording improvisations or you know whatever you just like the the piano allows them to just sort of create instantly being a violinist primarily uh, it means that whilst to some degree I can play stuff on the violin but it, it feels like whatever instrument you're holding whatever instrument you're you're using does have quite a big influence on on the work that comes out so um, if you compose on a piano doesn't matter if you're writing a string quartet, you're writing a sort of piano-ish string quartet because the shapes that come under your fingers are going to be the ones that lend themselves best to piano playing. Uh, I guess for that reason, I feel like I try to keep composing and performing as separate as possible in in uh, in my mind so that when I'm composing, I'm not limited by what instrument I happen to be holding, but instead it's a much more abstract notion of what would sound good and, you know, what would this feeling that I've got about this piece be best expressed by or what would this particular motif I'm hearing be best you know performed on um, and then later you know if I'm recording I'll, I'll perform it on on that instrument but yeah I don't know I try to avoid I try to avoid composing you know on specific instruments or for specific instruments I think because um, for me I find it quite limiting but I know that most composers are um, they just like to do everything on the piano which which is fine for them I suppose with a film, you know, it's it's locked. It's a, it's an edit which doesn't change. You know that 
this character is going to take 12 and a half seconds to walk from here to here and on the 13th second they're going to slam a book shut right if you know these things you can score that movement in a way that is hyper precise and you can add overtones to it you can create hesitation that isn't already there you can create a certainty that isn't there you can create all of these things by just adding touches to the imagery that's, that's so hyper-specific, you're reacting to tiny movements in body language. Um, there's no way you can do that in theatre unless, unless you're performing it live, which in some cases obviously has been the case, but in the vast majority of cases in theatre, what's done is it, it tends to get pre-recorded, um, and then you end up with these sort of loops that, that transition to each other based on cues, and you'll have somebody sitting in the tech box with a computer, and when a certain line is read, they'll hit the space bar, and when they hit the space bar, then this loop transitions into this loop. Or when this happens, they'll hit the space bar and a big explosion sound happens. Or when this line is red, you hit the space bar and, uh, you know, this dramatic piece of music starts. And because uh, you can never guarantee how long it's going to take or how, you know, how quickly it's going to happen, it means that um, what you compose in theatre has to be has to be very adaptable and very dynamic and you need to be able to accommodate pretty much anything you know if the character if the, if the actor forgets a line or forgets an entire scene you've got to know how to deal with that you've got to know how to skip ahead in a way that doesn't break the immersion uh, and sometimes actors do jump ahead they, they skip a scene because they they're, they're nervous or because they, they just forgot or you know they'll they'll accidentally repeat a scene because they, they didn't realize they'd already done it or um, because these things can happen it means that writing a theater score is much more like uh, you know setting up a game where uh, various different outcomes can happen and you need to establish where the rules are and how you plan to get back into it if this goes wrong or if that goes wrong um, and that just isn't the case with film in many ways film is easier um, because it's so uh, rigid in terms of the, the, the synchronization, you know, it's not going to change. Every time you see that film, it's going to be exactly the same. Uh, and it means you can be hyper-specific, but with theatre, it's, it's, it's quite different. But the similarities are there. I mean, you're still adding things that, that might otherwise not be there. You're still commenting on things that, that you know, the, the, the characters might not be aware of. Um, one thing that I think makes theatre particularly interesting in terms of writing music for it is that when you introduce music into a scene, the actors can hear it and they can react to it. And being able to... And that's what I mean when I say it's ludic. It means that what you do can be reacted to by them and what they do can be reacted to by you. And it's a two-way dialogue. And obviously because, you know, in the film world, this stuff was filmed months ago and the actors probably are already filming something else. You know, you don't get to have any kind of two-way dialogue with them. Um, but with theatre you do and that and that can be really interesting especially if what you're doing is live because you can have these interesting dialogues and create these interesting sort of just these interesting effects that happen when you know a, an actor is aware of music that the character is not supposed to be aware of you know it just creates these layers that that, that are just fascinating I think But no, I mean to be honest, in, in, in quite a lot of my work, it, it does involve w working on you know on the fringes of what's sort of typically considered uh, quote unquote normal, you know. So 
I have done I have done like I've put on concerts where where it has been very dissonant or very noisy or, or you know I've used amplification and electronics to, 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 to quite literally fill a room with with you know unsettling noises or, or incredibly loud drones and things like that um, and that's kind of one of the things that really excites me about um, about music is the opportunity to sort of show people um, the power music can have outside of some of the established norms that we have. I mean, at the beginning of the show, we talked about David Denyer writing the music to a micro opera about ancient Troy. Many would call it experimental. It was a production of Collide Theatre in London. It was performed three times in November of 2018. Three women stand on stage. Three instruments, cello, accordion, and violin. Three fates, supernatural voices, a timeless chorus, and metaphor of the endless generations that have died. In every generation, there is always another Hector. Troy, it's, it, is an, it is an interesting story. I think, for me, what always fascinates me about that story is not really anything about what's in it. It's more about the notion of how much of it might be true. And I know that like the, the, the rational part of my brain knows that probably none of it is true. It's probably just storytelling. But I just like to imagine there's a world in which there was actually a person called Hector that actually did some of these things. And, and that kind of fascinates me. And that sort of thing has fascinated me since I was, I was a very small child. And um, I kind of get excited by this idea that that the, some version of this story did actually happen, which uh, I mean, given that there actually is, turns out there is a city that you know that was called Troy, um, which you know is only relatively recently known. That just kind of excites me in a way, and I, and I think that sort of t- sort of ties in with just my general excitement with you know archaeology and just my fascination with the ancient world. Um, I think in terms of the story of Troy, I think kind of what what i think makes it so interesting is just that it's so old i mean and in a way this is this is true of lots of the greek you know the ancient greek plays and and the epics and and all of those there's something about you know just a big a big battle that that is just quite an exciting thing to talk about and with the opera is to kind of see it as this archetype it's the archetypal war Every war since then is a version of the same war in in, you know, in some very kind of abstract way. Troy, Ilium, an ancient city in Hisarlik, in present-day Turkey, a powerful kingdom of the heroic age, a participant in the Trojan War, a power that ruled the Trode, an historical land and sea region. Take a look at it. Google it. Put a kingdom where you can bottleneck the movement of adventurers. Own the land, the sea, and the highest hill, and you are a power to be reckoned with. In that age, the riches were to the east, kingdoms of unimaginable power. Control the sea, the approach, and you can force tolls upon the seafarers going east 
Troy is the fountainhead for literature, for mythology, for heroes and gods. Battles are not just fought with armies, but with the intervention and manipulation of gods, at least in those days. What is more tragic than Troy itself? It is a plot of a great city about to end. It is a story of characters that are caught up in the action that cannot be stopped. Is that not the definition of a tragedy? Troy was destined to fail, its walls to fall. And how tragic to give momentary hope to its citizens while their own hands pulled the instrument of their destruction inside their own walls. After all, who could possibly imagine a wooden horse filled with Greeks? Well, the seer did, La Aquan. The scale of tragedy increases with the warning that is ignored. So with my Cassandra-like hindsight, I declare with self-insurance, how could anyone ever imagine that Troy was mythology? Heinrich Schliemann may have proved its existence by finding its stones, but Troy is steeped in human nature and psychology. The same tune with slightly different notes. Troy is immortal because the tune is familiar. During the show, while we were conducting interviews, you may have heard the train rattle by in the background. David is not too far away from the Jubilee line. He has his windows open, rain and street lamps visible to the eye. It's a comfortable place, a compact studio desk, speakers, and computer screens. A modern composer in the digital age, surrounded by musical instruments of an analog world. Analog and audio sound that depends on the pressure of a sound wave for denier, it comes from the plucking of strings. You merely have to look around a bit. Leaning up 
against the back of a door is an eight-string electric guitar, and in the corner is an upright bass. He even has a saz, a long-necked lute. A man could rock out on the Ottoman Empire's top 40 on a long-necked lute. Another instrument is an oud, O-U-D, a short-necked lute with a pear-shaped body, a stringed instrument seen in Central Asia, Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Caucasus, and the Levant. According to Rahim El-Hajj, an Iraqi-American oud player, you had to hug it to be able to play it. The room is lit by dim orange and yellow lights. The main illumination is crimson, throwing the entire room into a surreal chaos. There are shadows everywhere. There is a fireplace and on the mantel, mangled candles and a skull with the teeth sharpened. And on the wall are posters, Blade Runner and Alien, including an extreme metal band, Meshuggah. But I think the most important thing is a stack of Pink Floyd 8-track tapes. Oh, you must remember 8-tracks. Advice from a father to his son who is about to listen to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. One, wear a good pair of headphones. Two, adjust the volume to a comfortable level, ensuring it is not too hard. Three, press play, then sit back and close your eyes. Four, do not do anything until the album ends. My advice to anyone that listens to David Denyer's music, don't close your eyes. Ever look closely at a Pink Floyd lyric? There is no dark side of the moon it's all dark, really. Or try this. Who was born in a house full of pain? Who was trained not to spit in the fan? Who was told what to do by the man? Lyrics by Britain's first psychedelic group, distinguished for extended composition and experimentation. Somehow I think that's what David is all about. One can hear the sounds of the train rattle past David's window. It is said the difference between noise and music is merely mathematical. 
Could it be noise entered his window and left transformed? Listening to Unsettling Music on the Jubilee. All music on the show was composed by David Denyer. Check out his website at davidenyermusic.co.uk.